Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sterling Moss is without doubt one of the greatest racing drivers of all time, a British racing legend, a global racing legend, and a driver who had vast success in Formula One sports cars, all manner of disciplines. So we're going to dedicate a podcast to, to analysing the great man as part of our uh, our Great Drivers series. We've done various people in the past, Graham Hill, Nicky Lauder, it's, it's been going on for, for a few years now, so always fascinating to do. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me first is someone who did see Sterling Moss uh, in action in, in his in his day in Titchmarsh. Hello everybody. Yes, I, I the first time I saw Sterling race was the 1955 Daily Herald International Sports Car Race at Alton Park as a schoolboy. And uh, I'd already become a, a, a Moss fan because of listening to reports about him on the radio uh, and reading about him in autosport. But the uh, first that was the first race. And then I saw quite a lot of his races up until um, 1962. Two or late sixty one, I think the last time I saw him race, including some of the races we're going to be talking about, the the TT in nineteen fifty nine, for example. We'll get to that. Yeah, I'm quite envious of that. How, what do you think, Kevin Turner, Autosport Magazine editor? Envious of uh, of Ian being able to watch. I, I am. Like yeah, in, I mean, it's, um, I mean, I quite enjoy doing doing the research on all these great drivers, you know, books, magazines, and where where it exists the footage. But it's quite. I'm expecting to do less talking in this than I perhaps sometimes do because I'm hoping to hear some first-hand experience and anecdotes from, from Ian. Our listeners will be very pleased to hear that. I they saw, know what you're like. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say my one memory of seeing Moss drive uh, was at Good Revival in 99 when it rained and he was in the 250F Maserati and he went from, I think it was about 16th in dry, but in the wet he came through to 4th. 
and you, I thought that was just a little hint of the sort of balance and poor, and it just looked all very easy. And obviously, he was, yeah, you know, he was quite an old man by then. So that's the one chink of uh, of experience I've uh, first hand experience I've got. Yeah, yeah, we've uh, both had the pleasure of seeing him uh, in uh, in sort of his, his later historic racing career, uh, as it were, which went on amazingly long actually didn't it it was uh, not so long ago he, he finished that's right and i happened to be at Le Mans because he was at this classic support race um 2010 i think it was uh when he just decided to retire there and then he, he basically said it's uh, it's too much for me it's it's i'm it's the first time i've been properly scared in the racing car so i'm going to stop now that's to his credit, I think. Um, so, uh, fair, fair play to him. I think he was at 80. So, <laughs> over 80, I a think. Pretty, a pretty yeah, good run. I bet he was yeah. probably still quicker than most, at, uh, even at the age of He wasn't the slowest. <laughs> uh, well, obviously, Moss, I guess we have to tackle straight away the thing that people always say about Moss. The moniker that he gains is the greatest driver never to win the, the World Championship. And I think that that is a pretty fair summation of a, of, of a driver, certainly among those who've, who ever were regulars in the World Championship races. But why is everybody beholden to the World Championship? Because Sterling started racing before the World Championship came into existence. Yep. There were far fewer races in those days in the World Championship, but Sterling still drove in a huge number of races each year. Uh, yes, he never won the World Championship, but there are a reason for that. I, I really don't see why people have to be judged by whether or not they won the World Championship. I think that's a function of where motorsport is now. And obviously most fans... As time goes by, fewer and fewer fans will remember the time before World Championship racing or the time when, say, for example, Formula One drivers did the 10-race World Championship calendar and X number of non-F1 races and World Sports Car races and F2, etc. So I think in the modern fans' mind, the World Championship is it's the, it's the only thing. Sort of thing. It's the pinnacle, whereas it just wasn't that clear-cut back in the 50s and I 60s. I think you could also argue that it wasn't so much he failed to win the World Championship, but the World Championship failed to recognise a driver with that ability because of how it was but in that period. You, we'll you'd get say. to in a, eventually, won't we, as we talk through Sterling's career, uh, to the reason why he didn't win the 1958 World Championship. I mean, that, that for reasons that are very Moss-specific, he was driving a works car, one of the best cars, but because of the way he... he supported Mike Hawthorne, who'd been excluded from the race. That gave Mike the points that gave him ultimately the World Championship. And uh, But it was the way they carried on in those days. Yeah, exactly. And oh, Mike Hawthorne's certainly an inferior driver to Sterling Moss, without without doubt. In the 50s, as I remember it, you were either a Moss fan or a Hawthorne fan, because Sterling had lots of success. Mike, on his day, was fantastic. And he was also a stronger personality. He came across um, in, a, in a way that was much more appealing of to, to modern enthusiasts, I suppose. Uh, but Sterling just won race after race after race. He had a good, very good manager in Ken Gregory who made sure that Sterling was always getting in the news. Um, but but Mike Hawthorne, on his day, could beat Sterling. And it's an interesting point. You can probably offer, offer some real insight onto this. Moss was kind of the first British racing star, wasn't he, in terms of, I get the impression well, he, did, he did have a wider profile outside of racing fans in, Absolutely. in the 50s. I, mean, I wasn't around in 1939, so I can't comment on Richard Seaman. Uh, but he was the last top British driver before Sterling came along. Uh, and he, um, not initially, there was resistance to Sterling Moss in the early days by the motor racing establishment, which we perhaps will get onto a little bit later. But once he'd won at Dundrod in 1950 in the Torres Trophy, people had to accept that this boy wasn't just a 500cc Formula 3 Cooper racer. Um, and he, um, yeah, was was uh, recognised as a star and he made headlines and he won Sports Personality of the Year and, and just generally was a, a high-profile name. 
And when he committed a driving offence, which happened from time to time, he'd get that was in the in the papers as quite prominent. Um, so yeah, he, he he was headline news. Yeah, I, I, I from from reading, he's the first big name that sort of goes beyond the sport. And also, I feel because we always like to assess these drivers as to did they move the game on in some way. And for me, Moss is one of the. You could make a case for him being sort of the first professional or modern driving, modern approach. You know, not not drinking, taking it all a little bit more seriously. It wasn't just a. There were. I know there were other drivers that took it seriously as well. But that's the contrast with someone like Hawthorne, who's still sort of doing the partying and stuff. I think Moss took it a bit more seriously. Although I think he has said that after losing the fifty-eight world title, he kind of thought, well, actually, the world championship. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's not the thing I need to worry about really. Well, one of his favourite stories, I mean, how much he's embellished, I wouldn't know because it wasn't actually there. But uh, he used to say he, he was abstained from sex the night before a race. But then, after, as he just mentioned, after failing to win the 1958 World Championship, he thought, what the hell? Um, whether it was... Uh, and he did smoke. I mean, he, I don't know, he may have actually advertised one brand of cigarette for a time. I think anyone with high profile in that era did. <laughs> You're probably right, Ed, yes. I think that's, that's probably true. Um, but, yeah, I mean, subsequent drivers... I mean, Jim Clark wasn't a professional driver in the sense of, of being managed and given a high profile. If anything, he tried to, to avoid personal um, publicity, and he, he was the one who came after Sterling. Um, their careers kind of coincided for about a year. Um, but then Jackie Stewart was very much somebody who, who was in the, the Sterling Moss mould um, in those decades. Mike Hawthorne wasn't. Peter Collins wasn't either. And Tony Brooks wasn't either. I mean, they, they, they loved driving racing cars quickly. And they had the ability to do so at Grand Prix level. But they weren't the all-round professional sportsman that Sterling Moss was. We should perhaps get into what you mentioned about Moss perhaps not being immediately embraced by the establishment. Why was that? Because obviously he came from a racing family, but maybe not of racing aristocratic stuff. It was his Jewish background and, and, and uh, family connections. And, and um, yeah, well, one of the books written about Mike Hawthorne, has Mike calling him Moses, and that that was part of the um, resistance to him. And also, I think they felt he was rather pushy. Uh, and in those days, that wasn't the th- done thing, really, old chap. You had to be quite sort of British and stiff upper lip and so on. Um, and it was really only that. I mean, well, you, you know, the story behind the 1950 Tories Trophy drive, um, Jackie wouldn't take him on. They thought he was just a single. The, the excuse they gave was that he was just a 500 cc racer. He did a few races in a Cooper with an 1100 engine, but basically he was a 500cc racer. Tommy Wisdom had this XK120, an early one, available on the, to, to him in the UK. And he g- gave up his entry in the Taurus Trophy, or he kept at the entry, but put Sterling in the car. And the rest is history. He just disappeared into the distance and the others couldn't get anywhere near him. The works Jaguars. And he was a driver who did, if you mentioned his 500cc success, he was a driver who basically made quite a big impact straight away. He's winning many races and just, just one of these guys who seems to take to it like a like a duck to water. I, I can't go back to his very first races. Um, his very first race was at Bruff, um, an aerodrome, airfield circuit in, in Lancashire. Uh, but he, um, in those days, was even then, if you read the reports in, I suppose, motorsport, because autosport didn't exist then, um, they were talking him up. The journalists recognised him. It was more the motor racing establishment that were reluctant to uh, embrace him until... Dundrold in 1950. Well, tell us about Dundrold in 1950, because that is an important race for him, as you've alluded to. 
Well, touched on it to some extent already in, in how he came to have the drive. Um, it was uh, through this very well-known journalist. I think it was the Daily Herald he wrote for Tommy Wisdom. Or was it the News Chronicle anyway? Some paper that's no longer with us. Um, uh, and uh, he, he had this car. Uh, I think the way the story is told, it's probably that um, Sterling's father, Alfred Moss, who was very good at promoting his son. So he did have a father who was help, helping him as well as Ken Gregory as his manager. Uh, and... Uh, he, he'd approached Jaguar to see whether they could get a drive in one of the works, three XK120s, and they wouldn't have him. Uh, so he was um, offered this chance by Tommy Wisdom. And on the day before his 21st birthday, it happened to be, in torrential rain and wind, and it was a really sort of stormy day in September 1950, uh, and he just disappeared off into the distance. And, and the other, the works Jaguars and all the other cars in the race just couldn't get anywhere near him. And thereafter, of course, he did become a works Jaguar driver for for some time with the with the c-type i think i think jaguar on the phone to him lofty england was probably on the phone to him um or perhaps even spoke to him after the race at dundrod but i remember i think he had to go from dundrod to race at brands hatch the following day in a 500 cc formula 3 race and of course travel wasn't quite as easy then as it is now but he i think he won as well didn't he (laughs) oh yeah that's right yes yes that was his 21st birthday um so so uh it, nothing like that had been seen before in the memory of, I mean, I was, wasn't was aware of it at the time. I was too young to remember that happening. Um, but that's the story. And, and uh, nothing of that level. I mean, however good Richard Seaman was, he wasn't doing it at that sort of age and doing it that convincingly. And obviously, that this stage of his career is the success of a Jaguar. Obviously, gets involved with HWM, has some success. It takes a while for him to really make a big impact, certainly in Grand Prix racing. Well, the HWM period, half of the races at least, if not more than half, were outside the UK. And again, for lack of autosport, although if, if um, motorsport covered some of the races, but he went off to all these obscure, well, to the British obscure races, um, unless they'd been part of the invasion of Italy force and had gone to <laughs> Naples or any of the other Grand Prix. That, um, there were these races all around Europe. Uh, and they were um, the races that he and Lance Macklin went to drive for the... Because Lance Macklin was another of the highly regarded drivers of the time, although slightly a bit older than Sterling. Uh, and um, they were doing this, what they were doing. And if it got reported at all in... in uh, motorsport it would be a couple of paragraphs probably unless dennis jenkinson was there um, motorsport in that area is quite quite unpredictable with what it covers absolutely yeah <laughs> so well, it's amazing some things are covered in depth you wouldn't expect and vice versa you could say the same about autosport very much so, yeah. yeah well it's very much the same um I mean, if you got dennis jenkinson there then you got a great report if he, if he wasn't there it was a couple of paragraphs and you wouldn't get a real feel for what had gone on really, until the books came out a little bit later. And the first book about Sterling Moss, which was published in 1952, the book by Robert Raymond, that that then opens up to everybody who bought it and read it um, just what he'd been up to and how much success he'd been having at places like Lake Garda or Naples or Rome or wherever he happened to be racing. But he's also, that during that period, he's because he's in various British because often the thing is oh he would have won more world championships if he'd been if he'd gone out of British cars early I'm not sure if that really stacks up because from 55 onwards he's in one of the best cars normally but certainly in that early 50s period he's in a range of British cars the HWM is probably about the best one actually but even that wasn't capable of say beating the Ferrari 500 in a Formula 2 race or, or whatever it was so it, he would have lacked the real headline grabbing results in the big races in single seaters although of course he was 
a leading driver for Jaguar in sports cars. Uh, and of course, for Jaguar in saloons as well. I mean, this, we get back to the versatility of Sterling Moss that um, once he became a Jaguar driver, which was from 1951 onwards, um, he, he was making some mo- impact in motor racing in sports cars or saloon cars. He remembers pictures of him driving the Mark 7 Jaguar. Ludicrous a, competition a, well, car, but it, yes. It, it wasn't thought like that at the time because <laughs> the Mark 7 Jaguar was a high-performance saloon. I mean, made today look like a great big barge wallowing around the corners. But Sterling in one of those won races. And, and so his profile, when he raced in the UK, was in getting higher and higher. But he carried on racing in Formula 3, 500cc Formula 3, until 1954. And one of the... This is slightly jumping ahead, but he drove in the British Grand Prix at Silverstone in 1954 in his 250F Maserati and was running second um, until the car retired near the end. On the same day, after the Grand Prix, he gets into his 500cc Cooper and wins the Formula 3 race. Imagine that happening now. Can you, uh, can you see uh, Lewis Hamilton doing that? He might like to, but he probably would actually. To, yeah. He's the sort of driver. He might fancy doing that in Macau to get into a three car, but yeah, yes. <laughs> maybe not on a, on a But it does seem, you know, mention that period. Kind of fifty-five seems to be the the kind of year where he breaks through as a as a proper superstar in that he has the Mercedes driver well, alongside Fangio, and that that's the point where it kind of the the star that is well, Sterling Moss is, yes is no. really I established. I'd, I'd go back a little bit before that. Um, He'd struggled in 52 and 53, the last two years of, well, the, the two years of two-litre Formula 2 as the World Championship category. Uh, and he'd driven British cars, Connaught, um, and he'd had these dreadful Cooper Alters uh, that had just been horribly unreliable and the, the G-type ERA. Um, but then f- he, 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 when the news broke that Mercedes were coming back, uh, Alfred Moss, his dad, went to Mercedes and asked Neubauer whether he could drive for Mercedes in 1954 and Neubauer said no he needs to go and prove himself go and get a Formula 1 car easier said than done but it was only £5,000 back then to buy a 250F Maserati brand new from the works Uh, and um, so Sterling went off and did that and straight away he was delivering in the 250F Maserati um, as a a privateer initially and then he became a works driver partway through 54. Yes the Gold Cup was the sort of breakthrough win in that wasn't it Vulcan Park? In August 54, um, he certainly won the Gold Cup. I was just thinking he might have won one or two races before then, but you may say that's the first he, one he, he won. He also credited his performance in practice at Swiss Grand Prix in the rain when I think he outpaced yes. the Mercs as being something that got sort of Neubauer, Alfred Neubauer's attention. Um, but as you say, he became, he was, he, Maserati couldn't ignore him, and I think they tried to. They wanted to keep him then, didn't they? Yes. But already it was. But interesting, the other thing that worked in his favour was that it was quite. It became clear during '54 that the, the second Mercedes drivers weren't always delivering. Um, and actually, there's a, there's a few moments where Allsport actually is quite critical of the of the Merc drivers. That now you might say that perhaps Allsport was in on this. Let's get Moss in it for next year, sort of thing. Um, but it did make the point of you know Fangio was leading the way. Um, and the number twos weren't always backing up in the or way Carl that Kling. Moss would do later in yeah in fifty five. Carl Kling, who was the number two to Fangio in, in the Mercedes team in fifty four, without calling him an old man, I mean he he wasn't in the first flush, um, and he he'd never been regarded. He was one of Germany's best drivers, but he wasn't in the first division of Formula One drivers. Uh, and Hans Hermann was an up and coming young youngish German, but uh, you know he he again wasn't. Um, one of the, the real front runners. But just going back a little, Mike Hawthorne, of course, had won the French Grand Prix in 1953 and, and that had made him better known. But Sterling Moss was 
on the same level already because of what he was achieving in sports cars. Um, and Sterling finished second at Le Mans in 1953, for example. Um, and he was having success. If you went along to watch motor racing at, say, Silverstone or mainly Silverstone, but some of the other airfield circuits around the country, Sterling Moss was there. He, he would be the one. He'd be, he would be the attraction even then, I reckon, to what, um, say, Lewis Hamilton is at, a, at the British Grand Prix today. I mean, he, he was the one they followed. Mike Hawthorne's profile rose considerably once he joined Ferrari. And, but again, they were at the receiving end of questions in the House of Commons about why aren't they doing their national service. I mean, there was there was petty bickering going on um, against both of them, where somehow Peter Collins kept his head down, went off to Paris, and nobody complained about him. Uh, I guess uh, kind of the, the Mercedes year is famous. Obviously, he was a support actor. Fanjo, the, the British Grand Prix, is famous where he had to sort of sit behind him, etc. Et, et if uh, I mean, there's a lot of myths surrounding that year and Moss's performance relative to Fangio. One what? that isn't a myth about that British Grand Prix uh, at Aintree. Uh, I wasn't there. Mumps kept me away, um, so I wasn't able to get there. Um, a bus ride from home, but I couldn't get to it. Um, but the the um, uh, in during the course of that race, they were tr- tr- trading the lead. Now nobody knows for certain. Sterling said, "I just don't know whether Fangio let me win or not." But what is a fact, and this was confirmed by Michael T, photographer for Motorsport, um, says there was a lap on which, and he was out in the far side of the circuit taking photographs. Um, Fangio had a spin. Now, that wasn't reported because the media didn't, you didn't have sort of television pictures or anything like that. Um, but there was one lap. If you look at the auto course, because um, they give you lap times of every, every lap of the race. And there was one lap where Fangio's lap time was up by about 10 seconds or so. And he came through 10 seconds or so behind Sterling Moss at the end of that lap. It was about two thirds of the way through, I think. And he spent the rest of the race catching Moss up and he got to him before the end of the race. So whether after that um, he felt that, Fangio felt that Sterling Moss deserved to win. I don't know. But whether there were other factors like Neubauer saying, look, it's in, we're in the UK. We want a British driver to win on th- th- this one. Or whether Sterling Moss genuinely... I mean, Fangio gives the impression in another of his books that it was um, Moss beating fair and square because Moss was determined to beat him. And on that occasion, he was able to do so. I've also heard an account of someone who allegedly bumped into Fangio at the hotel that evening uh, that he had a gearbox problem and so couldn't have over whether that would then explain the spin yeah. and why he couldn't you know it, it's difficult isn't it but I think that Moss sometimes gets criticised for 55 because if you compare say the the 55 season versus Lewis Hamilton's 2007 where he comes in and he's immediately on the num- you know, Fernando Alonso on the number one's case and actually is the reason that they didn't win the world championship that year McLaren and got done by Kimi Raikkonen but I think it's a different it's a it's a different mentality coming in. You know, Moss is learning his learning his craft. Fangio is clearly the number one. Moss did the job that he had to do, and when he was let off the leash a bit more in sports car racing, he was invariably quicker than Fangio. Yes. So exactly. I think that it's unfair to say. I don't think that fifty five is necessarily a very good um, way of judging Fangio versus Moss because they're at different points in their career at that Absolutely. stage. Yeah, and, and and it is you've just touched on counterbalanced by what he achieved in sports cars, where he could just drive his own race, and more often than not, I don't think Fangio ever beat him. Actually, no, there was the Eiffel Rennen, I think, where they they uh, basically, uh, yes, the, right. I think Mercedes told them to finish yeah. in a particular order, yeah. but otherwise, you know, Moss would have been world sports car champion in '55 had there been a. Obviously, it depends on the point I mean, system, it, but it's also said that Fangio didn't really enjoy sports car racing. He liked to see the wheels. 
So, uh, but then that Le Mans, the opening stage of Le Mans that year, um, when he took on Hawthorne and had that fantastic battle um, for the first couple of hours that unfortunately ended with a disaster. But um, that that was an example of Fangio really, because he. Fangio, that was the famous race where Fangio got the gear lever up his trouser leg because he, after the Le Mans start, and usually he did the Le Mans start because normally Moss would do the Le Mans start. Uh, although they, they didn't often share cars, but Fangio rarely did the Le Mans start. He did on this occasion. So he, he got away halfway down the field and clawed his way back up to be able to challenge Hawthorne for second place because Castellotti was lead, leading the Ferrari. Then they Castellotti had problems. They passed him and had that fantastic battle that was a rem- reminiscent of the the Reims battle between Hawthorne and, and Fangio. Um, but most of the time, Fangio wasn't uh, um, up to Moss's standard. But then you do wonder. Fangio didn't have a passenger. He didn't like because of the accident in oh in the in, in South America yeah. uh, when his passenger had been killed in a, one of those sort of cross cross country con- cross events. continent almost yes mm. cross country uh, races. So that he wouldn't carry a passenger. Uh, whether if he'd had a Jenks sitting alongside him, Fangio would have done what Moss had done. I, d- I doubt it, actually. Personally. Well, I think it, given that he was quicker at Dundrod, uh, anyway, you know, yeah. he, he was quicker in the 300 SLR, wasn't he, Sterling? I think than uh, than well, than the, the records show that. But then in the Targa Florio, um, when he had Peter Collins as his co-driver, uh, I think you'll find that Peter's stint. Um, included some faster laps and Sterling went off the road at least once if not mm. twice in the Targa Florio whereas Peter Collins just did a brilliant job in the middle section of the race and they won the race but certainly by, the, by this stage you can say 54 maybe I guess was the point where he really broke through yeah. in, in Grand Prix Tire Racing yes. 55 by that point he's established and there's a sort of six seven it's a seven year period where he's kind of one of the undoubted top guns, isn't it? Yeah, and that, that you can divide that seven-year period into two, I think. You can divide it into the time when Fangio was still around, which takes us to the end of 1957 or very early 58, but really Fangio at his peak was up to 57, including 57. And then after that, whoever came along, uh, it was Sterling Moss was just head and shoulders above the rest of them and, and, until his accident at Goodwood in the early 62. Mm, we, we've talked about this, haven't we, Ed? Because uh, how, at what point has the best drive in the world been... You know, when's the gap been the biggest between the best and the second best? I would say it's it's either Moss fifty eight to sixty one before Clark gets going and before obviously uh, Sterling's accident at Goodwood, or uh, Marcus Schumacher after Senna's get death and before Hakkinen really gets going. I think they're the two standout moments as a complete driver. Probably Jackie Stewart would be up there as well, but mm. he did have Jochenrint for a while, who was probably as quick. But I think that that Moss was right up there in terms of he was just. Everyone knew it. The other drivers knew that he was the guy they had to beat. Well, he was the benchmark driver, whatever he drove, just about. I mean, that mentioned how I first, when I first saw Sterling Moss race, that was in the one and a half litre Connaught. He wasn't going to win that race um, against three litre Ferraris and Aston Martins and D-type Jaguars, but he still finished seventh overall and totally dominated the one and a half litre class because he knew that he was going to do things with that Connaught, which he'd only driven once before, which nobody else was going to be capable of. And that's 1955. Now, if you go a little bit further on, he, he was just almost expected to win whatever he was driving because he was just so much better than anybody else. It wasn't until Jim Clark in 61, not 60, when his, Jim had his first Formula 1 season, 61 was when Jim Clark became the potential threat. He had a slightly better car because Sterling was driving the Lotus 18 with the 21 bodywork, whereas... Jimmy Clark had the Lotus 21, but um, 
that they had some great races it was the Brands Hatch non championship race where they were changing places. But Moss was on top, even though he had the older car. And they both acknowledged that as well, didn't they? Clark could con- Clark conceded that he knew he had a slightly better car. Yeah. And I think Moss was quoted as saying, "Next year, <laughs> yes. next year, I'm going to need something a bit more." Because he the last, basically after Van Wall, he'd kind of taken on the role of the underdog, even though he was the best driver. So driving for Rob Walker, it's certainly in, in Grand Prix racing, driving for Rob Walker, privateer, he quite liked the idea of I think taking on the especially Ferrari. Yeah. Um, you know, so hence these famous, you know, famous wins at Monaco and Nürburgring and in the, the Rob Walker Lotus. And I think he quite liked that. But I think he probably, when Clark came along, realised that he wasn't going to be able to perform miracles in quite the same way. Well, there is. He didn't drive for Ferrari, uh, who would have had him, uh, because of what happened when he went to Bari in 1952. Was it um, when it, Ferrari had offered him to drive in one of the Formula Two cars uh, in the Bari Grand Prix? And when he got there, he found that it had been allocated to Tarufi. I think it was. Uh, and uh, Moss had gone all the way down there with his dad and, and uh, ready to drive for Ferrari, and there was no car for him. So he vowed never to drive for Ferrari again. Uh, and jumping ahead, it is said that he would have had a Ferrari for the 1962 season, um, and that was all being set up um, had the accident not happened. But I do wonder whether, because the 62 Ferrari wasn't really very competitive against the British cars, it would have done him any good. No, I've... I- yeah, I, we've had this. We, I can't remember how it came up, but we did a kind of what if scenario. Yeah. I think sixty two would pr- probably have been one of those. Yeah, where he might have been able to snipe the odd win here or there in certain circumstances, like in sixty one, exactly. The but then, would he have been able to do with Ferrari the same sort of thing that John Surtees did, and get to the point where it's competitive enough to then fight for a world championship? But then you. You know, there you get more and more what ifs and buts and would yeah. it? Uh, yeah, it's it's quite tricky. But certainly, sixty two would have been would have been difficult. I think. Can I offer another what if? Which going back to, to the Mercedes year, what if Mercedes had stayed in Formula One in the way that they have done now and, and helped Lewis Hamilton to to take all these world championships? Because Lewis Hamilton is the one driver I'd put up there with Sterling Moss, um, and if Sterling had been able to carry on with Mercedes, whether or not Fangio was there. Would he have won world championships in the way that Lewis Hamilton's been able to with the modern sort of Mercedes? It's pretty it's hard to think not, isn't it? I think because I mean it might have delayed the rise of British constructors a bit. We know we know Mercedes could deal with the with the Italian teams, Maserati, yes. Fra- Yeah, they had them completely, especially after uh, Mascari was killed and the Lancias you know, were given to Ferrari, who spent the next two years making them worse. Um, so I think maybe the interesting thing: what would Mercedes have done in response to the rear engine revolution? by which time Sterling might well have been two-time world champion. But yeah, it's another what-if, isn't it? <laughs> I guess in this period, we have to come back to the uh, the ever unpopular issue of the not winning a world championship, because there were world championships he should have, could have won in this period. He could, we could be talking about Moss as a three-time world champion, but for a few little parameters that were... which I, It's not his fault that in 1959, he wasn't Jack Brabham and modified his own gearbox, strengthened the own gearbox so that you get the, the Cooper to the end of more races, was it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, who could Sterling have driven for in 1959? He wouldn't go to Ferrari. Uh, he clearly felt, I suppose, that driving for Cooper wasn't an option because Jack Brabham was already establishing himself there. But he certainly have beaten Brabham well, and McLaren in Cooper machinery uh, with, 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 that, with that gearbox. Drivers. Yeah, yes, well, yeah. Um, there weren't many options open to him. Um, and as we saw with Tony Brooks, who was second only to Sterling Moss, one could say, in, in 1958. Um, he had virtually nothing to drive in 1959. Well, he drove for Ferrari, but 
um, he went back to Van Wall in 1960, along with Yeoman Credit Coopers. I think. Well, I mean, you can almost go through it, can't you? So 55, you say, he's having his apprenticeship. 56, he's leading the Maserati line. I don't think the 250F was as good as the Lancia Ferrari. There are only two people that won World Championship Grand Prix in 250F, and it was Fangio Moss. So I think it's probably one of the overrated Grand Prix cars. We'll come back to that another time. Uh, 58, r- ridiculous point scoring system. Four wins. To, I'm sorry, four wins to one. You should be world champion, whatever else happens. And then 59, it's re- you know, he had some unreliability early on and then came on really strong at the end of the year. Probably would have won at Sebring, and then it's sort of dead. Well, if the gearbox hadn't packed up, yeah. The gearbox problem. 60, obviously, is taken out because a wheel falls off the Lotus at Spa, and that yeah. puts him out for several races. Yeah. And then 61, obviously, arguably his greatest Grand Prix campaign, when he's fighting, he's the only guy that can stop Ferrari, a Ferrari whitewash. That's right. I mean, what, what I find consistently interesting, having lived through it, is... Um, how many exceptional performances there were, not just by Sterling, but by other drivers as well, in a, a category for one and a half litre unsupercharged cars. Because from 1961 to 65, the cars were these little cars with minimal power compared with what they've had subsequently. Uh, and yet we had some fantastic drivers putting in some fantastic performances. Well, I, I, I come across it in a couple of places. I think that um, one of the reasons that Moss identified Clark I think Jackie Stewart's talked about this as the upcoming threat is because the mid-engine cars made the corner entry rotation which we all take for granted now all the top drivers do it and um, so brake later get the car rotated so that you effectively make the corner shallower I, I think Moss was probably the first to twig it and I think he saw that Clark was starting to do it as well I think the two of them were able to elevate themselves above the other people obviously cottoned on as time went by Stewart clearly did I think in his first year um, and so it's again, it's that they're finding that way of finding a margin over over the others. Yeah, but part of Sterling Moss's appeal, I, I, we go back to this view that it was because he didn't just drive Formula One. I mean, there weren't that many Formula One races, or weren't that many World Championship Formula One races. But he turned up in non-championship races. Yes, he never drove at Indianapolis, um, but he did do the Monza uh, race of two worlds in the Eldorado Maserati, in which the steering yeah. failed. So he did do that sort of race once. Well, and rallying did Coupe des Alpes, didn't he? As well, although it was a different form of the sport at, at that at that point. Well, yeah, I mean, he won a gold gold coupe, um, three successive clean sheets in the Alpine Rally, which was a. And he was second in the Monte Carlo Rally as well, um, which, by the accounts of those who sat with him in the car, it was quite an experience. And he's done one uh, one thing that no one else has done, which is win a, a Formula One race in a four wheel drive car. Uh, indeed, in, yes. in fact, I think that was his last win, wasn't it, before the accident. So that would be 16. No, he, he didn't he win in, in the Tasman races? Oh, very yeah, very probably, yeah. I'm pretty sure he won a race or two there. Um, yeah, because that would have been September 61, wasn't it? Yeah, so he, might, he would have, yeah, well, after that, but no, winning, in the, winning in the Ferguson. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the often overlooked last win by a front-engine car in the Formula One race. All right, it wasn't a World Championship race, but it was the last win by a front-engine car, the only win by a four-wheel drive car, as you say, yeah. Um, so clearly that, that must mean... As a driver, he was very adaptable, and I kind of, I kind of, it's. I mean, you'll you'll be able to offer some insight on this. It's always interesting to try and understand how these how these drivers drive their technique, that kind of thing. Mm. I assume, given how successful he was in five hundreds, etc., he was a he was very good at carrying the entry speed in and through the corner. But also, he doesn't seem to have had specific types of cars he struggled in. So that suggests to me he was adaptable. I can't think of any car that he didn't get the maximum from. Um, so whatever the car happened to be, if, if it was a standard 10, I mean, <laughs> we got there late for that Alton Park meeting in 1955, so we missed the saloon car race, but he was there in a standard 10. Now, 
you don't know what a standard 10 is, do you? Yes. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. yeah. And I wouldn't be able to tell you this. Explain to our listeners who may, who may not. <laughs> some of which well, may not be familiar. Well, it was a slightly underpowered uh, small saloon. I'm trying to think of what – it wasn't a hatchback because hatchback concept didn't exist really then. Um, but it wasn't the most powerful of road cars, and it was a sort of Ford Anglia-sized, Ford popular-sized car. Um one of which he drove on the road, actually. I mean, he didn't drive around in a flash supercar. He drove around in, I think the registration number was SFM777. Now, it wasn't his personal car, but it was um, one he borrowed from the works. He got beaten by Tony Brooks in the DKW, but nonetheless, he was second in the class, extracting the maximum from that car. And there's in that book about all his races, there's a photograph of him in this thing. Um, oh, so I'm just really amused that your, your stretch to a more modern equivalent to equate was a Ford Anglia <laughs> or Ford Popular. <laughs> Well, it is more modern. It is, another decade, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying. I can't think of anything where he wasn't... Because he was. He invariably led whichever team he was at, with the exception oh, yes. of, obviously, the year at Mercedes, Mercedes and Grand Prix yes. racing. Yeah, yes. But he, um, after that, he... But at the end of that 55 season, we kind of jumped around a bit, but um, 56, of course, he, he, he didn't have unlimited choice, but he, he seriously went into the question of whether he should drive a British car, and he tested the Connaught, the BRM, um, and to see and the Van Wall, and he drove the Van Wall to win the international trophy at Silverstone in '56. Um, but he he um, went to, to he, in fact he even had lunch for journalists um, uh, and sounded out their views on what he should do, whether he should drive for um, a British team. Um, no, why never won a world championship? Because <laughs> he consulted the, the, the views of um, well, many years later, Derek Warwick did that. He uh, did. Whether you should go to Renault, didn't he? That's probably why he never won a World Championship Grand Prix. That's why I said it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is very good. We're, we're not a good source of advice. <laughs> um, but but uh, he, he thought Maserati was a safe bet. In hindsight, who knows? If he'd gone to Van Wall in 56, apart from winning the International Trophy, would he have won other races? Harry Shell showed great speed in the Van Wall that year, but didn't win anything significant. But tackling some of the, the other characteristics of his driving, there is a... Sometimes people cite the fact that because he had the cars he raced didn't have a great reliability record, certainly in Grand Prix racing, that he might have been hard on the machinery, but I'm not sure that's justified. That was a, um, well, if you come from my perspective as a fan, a schoolboy fan, uh, it's a myth. Um, it was because things like the gearbox weren't machined properly, so that's why it failed on him. Uh, the Van Wall gearbox was not a very good gearbox. Um, he, he lost, no, he, well, he, he went out on the first lap of the 1958 Belgian Grand Prix, um, having missed a gear change. I, I looked at that, that up after we spoke yesterday, Kevin. He definitely held his hands up and said that was my fault. And he the said, 58 Spa. 58 Spa, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and said it was his own, he, he missed the gear. Mm. Missed the, missed the gear Which change. is not an uncommon reason for no, problems we, in that area. Yeah. If you, and if you make a, I, I don't, I, first of all, I think someone who wins the Nürburgring 1000 kilometres four times is not a car breaker. And he and and twice it was in Maseratis, um, and and twice in Aston Martins. He also finished second at Le Mans twice, at least, uh, and the second time of those in a car that wasn't really capable of winning. It was uh, Moss Collins combination that kept the DB3S in contention in '56. Um, it, it it just doesn't stack up for me. I think you could say the Cooper he didn't, as you say, have the he didn't make the changes that Jack Brabham did. But I think that should be a plus for Brabham. That was an unusual mm. skill that Brabham mm. had. Well, he, he was physically putting for... ribs into the gearbox yeah, case. Yeah. It was a Citroen gearbox casing, wasn't it? To yeah, I think so. For the yeah. T51, so, uh, and, and, uh, yeah. that, and Moss had gearbox yeah. failures uh, in that car, and also being quicker across his career, Moss won forty five percent of his races. Well, you can't you can't be a car breaker in that era to have won forty five percent. Particularly of your with races. the amount of races he did, uh, <laughs> he just he he happened to be in the lead of lots of the races that he failed from 
because he was the fastest driver. Uh, you, you just mentioned, and we're going to get to them, let's do it now, the, the Nürburgring sports car races that he won. Because the the 1,000 Ks in 58, he had Jack Brabham as his co-driver. Uh, and this is not meant to be disrespectful to Jack's memory, but he wasn't on the same level as, as Sterling in sports cars. Uh, and his lap times were way bit this is on the Nordschleife obviously on the full uh, Nürburgring circuit as it was in the 50s um, and so he drove for most of the race and he, he does say afterwards that was the most strenuous drive he'd ever done I mean this is, he drove for something like four or five hours of the of the six or seven hours that the race took um, and he was absolutely shattered at the end of it uh, he said he'll never do that again uh, the following year <laughs> He persuaded David Brown, who wasn't was more interested in getting his Formula One cars to do well in Grand Prix racing than, than uh, win the World Sports Car Championship. Sterling won the World Championship for Aston Martin that year, oh, partly because of going to, to the Nurburgring, uh, and with Jack Fairman as his co-driver, who put the car in the ditch um, partway through his first stint. Um, and, and Sterling kept on retrieving the situation, and just he was against proper Ferraris. I mean, the, the works Ferraris were there. The works Porsches, which are pretty good around the Nordschleife as well, were there. Uh, and and he, he just um, completely trounced them. Uh, and those are two of his... That wonderful book by Chris Nixon, Kings of the Nürburgring. If you haven't got it, get it. It's a wonderful book. Yeah, that's on my bookshelf. Right. Uh, and... and uh, we should add that before recording this podcast, Ian reeled off a list of books, some of which I've ordered. I've spent several hundred pounds before recording this, so there have been a few things missing. He's a very good source for book advice. Uh, um, anyway, the, 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 in the, the Kings of the Nürburgring, I mean, if anybody was a king of the Nürburgring, I mean, people always talk about Fangio in 1957 German Grand Prix, um, but those sports car drives in the Aston Martin, I think Sterling, Doug Nye once told me, and he's written books with Sterling, um, that, that uh, Sterling reckoned was the 1959 sports car, 1000 Ks, was his what he reckons is his greatest drive. But we'll have to cross-reference that with your list of Moss's greatest drives oh, that we'll get that, to in a that's second. That's the third different race that Sterling <laughs> suggests is his greatest then. Well, so. if you've been around that long, it, it well, yeah, but, but we should be allowed to change it. We should have been touching on the fact that you're so strong in sports cars and Grand Prix racing, turning his hand to rallying. Oh, and in fact, we've had this debate in print before, haven't we, about who's, who's the most versatile racing driver, and it came down to you arguing Moss, I was arguing Mario Andretti. Uh, but certainly, you can't argue that Moss is consistently successful across a very broad range. For longer than Mario. I don't think Mario Andretti was... was um, I might have had a different view if he'd won Le Mans, but of course he threw away his best chance of winning Le Mans. Yeah, and that's very true. But he was also still getting poles for IndyCar races at 53, which yeah, I know that, Moss didn't quite have the chance to it, well, that's what do that say. sort of thing. He yeah. didn't have the chance to, did he? No, so he, he, you can't make a like-for-like comparison. No, no, no. But I, I think, in short, my, my argument for Andretti was simply because he did over-racing and some stuff on the loose. It was partly that, but I, th- I think it, you know you can you can argue that till the cows come. I mean, there's no sub- there's no objective way for, yeah, for deciding. But, but the simple fact is, I think those are two drivers who are very easy to zoom in on the fact that Moss is such a strong contender tells you a lot about him. Yeah, for me, the it, yeah, it comes down to sort of the weighting of it, doesn't it? Really, the reason I made that argument was more because of his margin of superiority over the rest of the field in sports cars, in Formula One, in whatever it was. I would say that Mario was one of the best drivers in any given category he was in, whereas Moss was the best. But your argument essentially was that Mario was one of the best across a broader array, slightly of broader. Yeah, just, so that, just, that was really the crux of the yeah. But when you can argue debate. that, you can argue that round and round uh, circles till the, till the cows yeah. come home. But I do think that versatility for Moss is is an important part of acknowledging his greatness because again, it comes because I always think adaptability is so important for drivers, and that's that's what separates the, the sort of the the, the upper tier that, that that group that small number of drivers because they can adapt to different types of cars even different characteristics within 
similar categories of cars. Where, where do you put, and I'll tell you why I'm asking this question, um, where do you put the likes of Phil Hill as adaptable drivers? Uh, and another one, because I wrote a letter to, as a schoolboy, I wrote to, I can't remember now whether it was Autosport or Motorsport, but it was one of the two, about Olivier Jean de Bien, who in 1960 was doing very well. He'd already won Le Mans in 58. And in, and in 60, he won it as well. And then he started doing rather well in Grand Prix in the Yemen Credit Cooper. I think Jean de Bien's one of those drivers who we talk about a bit more if we were French. He's, he's one of these... What, what I mean is, he's one of these drivers who was very, very effective in a kind of next tier down. Yeah. And sometimes you sometimes drivers like that do get overlooked. So I agree, he was a very good driver. Yeah. Uh, uh, very versatile. I mean, the reason That's I mentioned Phil, Phil Hill as well. Yeah. And maybe I guess you're coming into the, the Kev argument there of... Hill was probably a better sports car driver than, than Grand Prix driver. I think that's probably fair. But I think he was a better Grand Prix driver than he's regarded as. Interestingly, years ago, we did a, about 10 years ago, we did a greatest Grand Prix drivers yeah. vote where we got in contact with, it was something like 219 drivers who'd started World Championship races yeah. and got them to vote for their top 10. It was secret ballot. And actually, Phil Hill didn't get that many votes, but all the guys from that era yes. would put people like Phil Hill in there. I know... I shouldn't really. I don't really want to give away too many things, but I know Jack Brabham, for example, had Phil Hill in his top ten. Right. Yeah. So it's just a, it's just yeah. an interesting one, and I remember thinking that, thinking, well, perhaps that's a reason to slightly reassess Phil Hill. Well, then you get into a debate about Phil Hill and Dan Gurney, but I want to kind of go <laughs> go back. That's go- no contest, surely. Gurney wins that hands. Da- sorry, I- Gurney wins that on. hands down. Sorry, yeah, carry on. <laughs> yeah, that's a different like, podcast. We'll, we'll put that on the list for a future podcast. <laughs> Um, no, I mentioned earlier on about the Nürburgring races that he won, the 1,000 Ks. In 1959, um, of course, the final round of the World Championship, which was a, to be fought out between Aston Martin, who had got there in spite of David Brown's uh, wishes for the season, Ferrari and Porsche at Goodwood. Um, and there's a fame, well, it's, it's a well-known story about how Sterling Moss shared with Roy Salvadori, who was the other really quick Aston Martin driver. Um, Sterling did the first in after jumping the start. I, was, I remember standing directly behind um, in the spectator enclosure behind Sterling, and I think Dan Gurney was second quickest. Then there was Graham Hill down there, and the the, the editor, the owner of the News of the World, which sponsored the race, um, was there to drop the flag, uh, and the timekeeper, um, son of Ebby Ebel White, was uh, going to tap him on the shoulder to drop the flag. But Sterling jumped the start, and so he was halfway across the track, and Dan thought, well, i better go too, hadn't I? So he set off across the track, and gradually the message, and the, the, the starter was still standing there with his, um, it, it's all mentioned in, in Christopher Nixon's book, uh, Sports Car Heaven, um, and the, 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 the News of the World man was still holding the flag up um, when half the field was I in I can't cars. believe this ever happened. Nobody did that sort of thing back in the day. <laughs> uh, anyway, it, it didn't matter in them because, of course, Sterling did his stint, then Roy Salvadori took over, came into the pits at the end of his stint, and the car caught fire uh, and I was still standing in the same place so I saw the whole thing go up in smoke and flames um, and then Sterling got into the other car that Carol Shelby would be doing a great job with and had it running in second place I mean Carol Shelby would be on one of his really good days um, then he handed over to Jack Fairman who wasn't quite as quick um, and then Sterling got into the car and for the rest of the afternoon he caught and passed the Ferraris the Porsches took the lead uh, and just ran away with it it was an amazing performance. It was, you know, just fantastic. It wasn't the greatest of circuits. I mean, Goodwood is not exactly um, the Millimilia or the Tiger Florio or whatever, but it was nonetheless an incredible performance. And that won Aston Martin the World Championship. Uh, we should, before we get on to your greatest drives, Kev, briefly mention the, the accident that finished Stanley Moss's career, the crash at Fordwater at Goodwood in uh, 1962. I mean, he was fortunate to obviously escape escape that and, uh, and survive it, but 
you can't help but think what could have happened if he if, if that hadn't, hadn't happened and he continued to race. What would he have been, 31 at the time? Uh, yeah, 32. He was born in 29, maybe, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. So, yeah, so this 32. is... Uh, yeah. So, yeah, still... So, younger still, than Lewis Hamilton still, is now. Yeah, still significant. You could easily say he could have been going for another... 10 years at the top level rather than well, I should say he did return in the BCCC uh, in the early 80s which uh, was uh, we'll skip over that can we, yeah. can we skip um, over that yeah uh, <laughs> I just wanted to mention that as a but as well, a, as a, but, it, but yeah but the accident it's just fascinating to think that Moss could it's not impossible Moss could still have been around a, as a top Grand Prix driver in 1970 so well Jack look Brabham at Jack, Jack Brabham was um, and I think the, the importance there is you, 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 you're you with the changes as you go along and I think you know Sterling would have he'd have adapted I, can, I can't think of a top driver that suddenly became less competitive because of a rule change it do, that doesn't really happen the top drivers tend to be the top drivers and I know reason to think that Moss wouldn't have the, the thing that's frustrating is that most sports done this a few times to us isn't it we were denied a Moss Clark battle because of the Goodwood crash we designed a, d- denied a Clark Stewart battle because of Hockenheim 68 and we were denied Senna Schumacher as well um, and, and that yeah, what would that would have been you know, fantastic well there was the Brands Hatch race as I say in June 61 that was the, I think the, there may be one or two others but there that was the main occasion as well. mm. when Moss and Clark went head to head for much of the race it was a full Grand Prix length it wasn't a Grand Prix but it was a full Grand Prix length race um, so yeah the, 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 the other what if is as I touched on earlier, what if the Ferrari had been delivered? And of course, Ferrari was serious about that because they'd had such a rotten 62 season. Uh, 61 season, they had a good 61, but 62 was not looking so good. They supplied after Sterling's accident in this island with a car to drive at the International Trophy, um, complete with a pale green stripe over it. It was red, but it was, it was uh, one of the 156s. Um, so it, it was a serious offer. But I don't think if he'd been in the Ferrari, he would have been able to match Jim Clark or Graham Hill. No, no, I think the car was too far, hmm. too far behind. But it's interesting to think, let's say Moss had been a Ferrari driver for a decent chunk of that time. It could have been very interesting because there were times where they struggled for drivers. Admittedly, there were also times when they lost drivers in that period, so we might not even have, have made it through it. But it, but it is it is interesting to obviously the further you try and extrapolate. But if, if he's around in that period, it's just it's just. Yeah, what it's we just never disappointing. We never got to see that. How yeah, that played what out. we never saw, I think, was well. I know it's a fact, isn't it? We never saw him in a three-liter Formula One car, uh, which, which to me was as interesting as seeing him in head to head with Jim Clark, because we know how good Jim Clark came out to be. And then there was John Surtees and Dan Gurney and Graham Hill as well. Um, but we never saw him in, in a what was a proper Formula One car, if you like, a three-liter Formula One car in 1966. I, I can't see it being a drama at all. Um, well, no. I mean, he could he mastered a 450s Maserati. I'm sure he'd have. Uh, no, I'm not saying it was a drama. I just like to have seen how. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, 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 I'm not yeah. saying it would have been a problem for him at all. Mm. And I'm no. sure, just like Brabham, he'd have done well in the early wing cars as well. That's like I, I, th- I think, as we've established, he was so versatile. So, uh, yeah, but just a shame that it, it ultimately he basically had half a career. So that's. Yeah, well, I mean, he, that, so, so that that says that he, that he was able to go down as one of the all-time greats and so versatile. Even though he missed out quite a few years, yeah, it says I mean, a lot. The accident came, uh, the final accident came um, when he was younger than Lewis Hamilton. Well, let's get on to your list of the ten greatest drives, Kevin. Then Ian can uh, tear your arguments apart. Which uh, well, Ian might have been at some of them, which would add exactly. Yeah, add we'll have some, uh, have some uh, extra. In fact, I know that he was at a couple of them. Well. Number um, 10 in the list, we'll go in reverse order. We've already mentioned the 1950 Taurus Trophy, Dundrod in the Jaguar. 
where he won. Anything you'd like to add on that? Not, not really. I mean, it was kind of the first big, I guess the first big win. Um, and I just like the story behind Jaggy not giving him a car and then rocking up and blowing everyone away. And it was a, it's the first example as well of, uh, which we'll come back to a bit later on, of wet weather. We've not really talked about that, but he was the guy in the wet as well. Didn't actually have many World Championship Grand Prix wins in the wet because it just didn't coincide. But he did win a lot of wet weather races elsewhere. But of course, he hadn't, up to that point, all he'd ever driven was 500cc and occasionally 1100cc Coopers uh, in short races in England. I mean, yes, he'd gone and raced at Lake Garda with the um, 1100cc Cooper. So there'd been no chance to see him in the wet. I mean, and that was, as you say, one of the first exact opportunities he had to show what he could do in the wet. Probably worth mentioning the nature of the Dondrod circuit as well. Proper scary road racing circuit, undulations, hedges, telegraph. I mean, it got, they stopped using it after horrendous accidents in 55. It's on YouTube. There's, there's um, pictures of it on YouTube. The 55 race in particular, which gives a very good feel for the BP made a film at the time yes. uh, of that race, yeah, good. Uh, which is well worth looking at. And, and, and the, the circuit was... I remember we, we got the film to a, f- a film show at school. I remember introducing it. This is me, aged, whatever, sort of teenager. Um, Precocious motorsporting motor teenager. Even then, saying... This circuit was just too dangerous. And I'm, we're talking about early 60s now, um, looking back to 55. Uh, and watching that film, you just realised that circuit was outrageously dangerous. It's fine for motorcycles, perhaps, but for cars, it's not surprising, sadly, that there was that horrible accident. Mm. Mm. So pretty amazing for someone not yet 21. <laughs> Phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Given their lack of experience elsewhere. Uh, number 954 Italian Grand Prix. That's not one that leaps out when you look through the results because it... He was classified down in 10th well, place. But. I wanted to pick one from... F- no, well, but he should have won it, really. Um, it was... Uh, it, 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 for me, there were th- sort of three... Dro- well, let's put Gonzalez to one side, a separate argument, but there were th- three standout drivers, Fangio Ascari and Moss, I think, was getting himself onto that level as well. And the three of them had a yeah, had a, had a fight. Um, Ascari, of course, because of his situation with Lance, you know, being ready yet with the D50, I think was in a Ferrari... Um, but the car broke, and then Moss had a fight with Fangio, and I had him beaten. He pulled away. Oh, yeah. He was gonna, he was gonna win the race, and um, yeah, and then it, and then it failed him. Um, but that was in a, you know, that if you think he started the year as a privateer, Maserati, you know, just just driving with his own 250F. By then, he'd got some factory. I don't know whether he was actually a works driver or just a factory supporter. Not quite sure by then. He, he's, I um, think, regarded as being a, a factory driver by then, and occasionally had the use of a factory car. Mm. So, but by then, so so in that race, he essentially had Fanjo in the Mercedes beaten. Um, so that was that for me was the standout race of '54, notwithstanding the British Grand Prix, which was another impressive one. Well, you're quite right to choose that race, uh, and uh, it was the race that finally convinced Neubauer that this was a guy they should have. I mean, here is a guy in a Maserati, uh, which shouldn't be as good as the Mercedes. Um, Defeat, getting way off ahead of, um, of Fangio in the Mercedes, which was a streamline, I think it was at Monza, um, that Fangio was driving. Uh, and yeah, it, it was... Uh, what I liked about Sterling Moss is he ended up pushing the car across the line, as he often did, because he was allowed to do that in those days. And there were no toys out of the pram sulks and rants and raves and, and, and helmets being hurled around the place. Um, okay, that's what happens. You know, it was it was just... Um, a calm acceptance of, of of the outcome of the race for him, whereas today I think there'd be 
all kinds of tantrums. Yeah, although to be fair, modern drivers are probably more used to a higher level of reliability. I think they just expect the cars to work now, don't they? But Whereas you probably wouldn't have done quite so much then. But yeah, I certainly don't remember ever coming across a Moss uh, yeah, rant about an unreliable car. Yeah, very different times. It's not been enough to send yet, but maybe we'll get on to some. So number eight is 57 Pescara Grand Prix. That's the only, well, championship race held at Pescara Circuit. But of course, the Copper Cherbo was a great race for a, for a long time. And yeah, a win in the Van Wall. Yeah, another incredible road circuit, um, which you'd look back on now and go, do they really have a Grand Prix there? Um, but yeah, I mean, he, I just happened to check how much he beat Fangio by. But I mean, Fangio and Moss were, I think, the standouts in 57. I think they really were ahead of everyone else by then. Um, and Fangio obviously won the World Championship to Maserati. Yeah, to Musso, he wasn't that bad and on his day. Mm- yeah, Musso was, was Yeah, well, he quickly. did actually grab the lead, didn't he, yes. um, of that race. But yeah. I yeah, we'd never put money on him beating Moss or Fanja across a Grand Prix distance, no. and Fan- and once Moss got the lead, he just he just disappeared and he ended up beating Fanja. I can't remember it was. I'm trying to look at my notes, but I think it was there. We go more than three minutes, um, and he matched Fanja's pole time during the race. So it was just a you know it was a, a, a dominant performance ahead of the guy that had up to that point really been you know the the man in. Now here's a cheap racing. book you need to get. It's a very very good Richard Williams's book. Yeah, oh, the I've last, got that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great book. Yeah. It is, and, and, and it really anything by Richard Williams is very good. To be fair, he is, uh, and, and that 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 is a, a great read. It gives you a real feel for what that race. But if you're ever down in it in uh, that part of Italy uh, on the Adriatic coast, you can still drive, of course, drive around the circuit because it's, it's still there. Um, uh, and it gives you a, it's just ordinary Italian mountain roads. Some of the circuits. You know, Trulli country. That, that isn't it. He's uh, Trulli's, Trulli's from Pescara, isn't he? Yes. That's and right. curbs, lamp posts, houses, stone walls, all that sort of and stuff. And filling stations. Um, oh yes, Jack yeah. Brabham. <laughs> yes. <laughs> on on on, uh, uh, on one lap was running out of fuel, so he pulled into this filling station, topped up, and carried on. <laughs> Glad to see Lewis Hamilton try that these days. Um, number seven, the British Grand Prix at Aintree in 1957. Had you recovered by then? Were you able to get the bus there? Or? Oh, that was two years later, of course. Yes, I was able to get the <laughs> That'd bus. That'd be a lot of long months about You that never would. know. Relatively straightforward sounding illnesses were more complicated back then. <laughs> uh, uh, and um, yeah, so it was a bus ride from home, from South Liverpool to North Liverpool. And, and, and um, uh, yeah, it, it was a, an amazing day because the expectation had been building up. I mean, it's difficult to, to 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 describe now how desperate the British were in if you read Motor Racing magazine or Motorsport magazine or or um, Autosport um, to have a British car winning a Grand Prix. I mean, Tony Brooks had won at Syracuse in the Connaught, but that wasn't a World Championship race, um, and there had been a kind of false dawn in that Connaught then went out of business, and and um, Van Wall was the big hope, but that for various reasons, Sterling hadn't raced in the French Grand Prix because he had sinusitis, and and um, so. The op- opportunities were there, but hadn't been at uh, 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 Monaco. He had problems as well. Um, so, was it going to be the day um, at Aintree? And yeah, I was standing at uh, with my mum, doing her lap chart. Very good at lap chart she was. Um, watching the uh, the race at Beaches, uh, and well, the story. Do you want me to carry on with the story? No, no, it, keep going. Keep yeah, going. I mean, it, it, it was a ninety lap race. Uh, on a three-mile circuit. So it was a long way. It took over three hours, the race. It wasn't sort of half an, an hour and a half like they are today. Um, and Sterling went in his own car, qualified on pole position, headed off into the lead. Jean Barry was second in the 255th Maserati. Uh, and uh, after about 20 laps, 
um, Sterling's van wall started having a misfire, so he came into the pits. He persevered for a couple of laps, and we all thought, oh, gosh, it's going to happen again. He's not going to do it. Anyway, he came into the pits, and they called in Tony Brooks, who was still recovering from injuries he'd suffered at Le Mans in the Aston Martin. So he wasn't fully fit, but he keeping the car on the boil. He qualified on the front row, and he was running fifth. Um, came into the pits. Sterling took it over um, when he was in ninth place. And ahead of it were Bearer, other 250F Maseratis. Fangio was in the race. Uh, there were the Ferrari Lanciers of uh, Mike Hawthorne, Peter Collins, um, Musso, and so on. Uh, and uh, the, the, the chase, it, it was the first time I think I'd really got a, a feel for the, the sort of race that I love where a driver's playing catch-up. And he started, as I say, his catch-up in ninth place, and it was a long race. And he was getting closer, but it was touch and go. I mean, we didn't have sophisticated timing arrangement. You couldn't look at your phone then and see what the timing was. But he was catching at the rate of about a second a lap, and it was real touch and go. The commentators were on the case, so you could hear what they were saying, and they, they were able to sort of describe how the gap was coming down gradually. And Then suddenly, when he seemed to be just about within striking distance, coming into beaches, and this is where we're watching, there's Bearer going slowly. He was leading the race by quite a long way. And Mike Hawthorne driving past, looking over his shoulder at his punctured tyre, which had run over parts of um, Bearer's um, bell housing or whatever it was that had broken and or clutch had broken on the track. Um, and so there was Stuart Lewis Evans in the other van wall, took the lead, got past the Ferrari in the Maserati. Sterling Moss was right behind him. And by the end of the lap, Sterling Moss was in the lead. In other words, so... My mum's lap chart shows Lewis Evans leading, but by the end of the lap, it was Sterling Mosley. So you'll never see Stuart Lewis Evans as the leader of a lap of that Grand Prix, but he did lead for half a lap, nearly a full half lap. Um, well, there are people who lead races, but it doesn't go in the record books. You often, uh, they at least often get missed. Lance Stroll led the, led the German Grand Prix for a few corners. Well, there we are. That, it won't show in the record books. Well, Monza slipstreamers as well. Yeah. They had loads of leaders that didn't register across the line. Like Theo Farby, who's supposed to have Never led a Grand Prix despite three pole positions, but did briefly lead in Austria. The Benettons were just blowing out. I've digressed anyway. Carry yeah, on. Well, that was a good digression, but no, basically it's, it's, another it's, feature. It's one of those subcategories I just quite enjoy. <laughs> so anyway, so Sterling, uh, Sterling has the lead. Stuart Lewis Evans doesn't last very long in second place because the throttle linkage breaks on him. Uh, so it's then a question of fingers crossed. Is he going to get to the... I think there was still something like 30 laps to go, quite a long way to go. Um but he stayed in front, made a pit stop. Oh, dear, what's happening? It was just for a precautionary top-up of uh, liquids. Um, and he carried on, won the race, and it was just amazing. I mean, the, the response, the reset. We talk, you know, we get the excitement of Lewis Hamilton winning or previous years, Damon Hill or Nigel Mansell winning at Silverstone. Um, but it was just extraordinary. And, and something that still sticks in my mind, these little details, on the bus on the way home, uh, in those days, Liverpool buses had bus conductors. Remember bus conductors? They collected the fares. I've heard I've heard myths about bus yeah, conductors. Okay. Yeah. Well, as we got on the bus to go home, and this is Liverpool. You know, this is a, a football city, not a motor racing city. The guy said, uh, "How did Sterling Moss get on today?" Then there was obviously widespread interest. I'm I'm, I'm using one bus conductor, bus conductor as an example of that. Um, in what his chances were of winning the race, and yes, he won it, and it was with Tony Brooks, of course, keeping the car on the boil for the first twenty laps or so. Um, it was just an amazing day, um, uh, and yes, because I, I a great um, follower of the gospel according to Dennis Jenkinson. If you read what Jenks wrote in the in the various issues of motorsport for the rest of that year um, about now, because he'd been banging on about how pathetic British cars were, they should be winning by now. Da di da di da. The BRM is rubbish, and so on. 
And it had been in that race, actually, complete rubbish. Um, they'd be way off the pace. But the V16 as well hadn't been obviously a success. Um, and Jenks, you know, his articles, yeah, Van Wall have done it fantastic, amazing, you know, and, and uh, put it much better than that. But it, it was a huge turning point. And from then onwards, of course, Britain produced front-running Grand Prix cars. Wow, standing account there. You don't need to say anything on that one, Kev. We can, we can no, move on. Done. To, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have... Should have got you into right the entry as well. Yeah, but, but have, uh, it's, it's great to have that sort of personal connection to it, isn't it? I'm, uh, I enjoyed that. But number six is a 1958 Argentinian Grand Prix uh, in the Cooper, despite uh, despite an unusual eye injury. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, I was going to say despite... I thought you were going to say despite having a two-litre car against the two-and-a-half. I mean, earlier we said that yeah, he was the first... Well, the only driver to win a uh, F1 race in a four-wheel drive car, but he was also the first to win a world championship race in a well, mid-engine car, technically. Um, so Van Wall weren't ready for, for 58, um, or the 58 season opener at Buenos Aires. And actually, it was quite a small field, but it still had um, Maserati and Ferrari. that were They were quicker, um, but uh, Sterling decided not to, not to pit for tyres, and there was various... The accounts say that, that, that the Rob Walker team was sort of readying themselves for a pit stop that was never going to happen. And by the time um, the, the opposition realised that he wasn't going to come in, it was too late. Although, actually, he didn't win by much. He only got to the flag 2.7 seconds ahead, having run the tyres through oil patches to keep the... Because it was down to the canvas. It's just a great, it, it, pro- proper underdog story. Uh, absolutely. I'm yeah. not sure that there were... Well, certainly no one at the time that would have won that race in that car. Yeah, I mean, he had the ability to nurse the car. I mean, it goes back to, Ed, you flagged up the point some time ago about the uh, way in which he was hard on the cars. Well, he couldn't have been hard on the tyres. Oh, yes, the tyres were getting worn out, but it, was, uh, not, it wasn't a three-hour race because for 1958, which is part of the reason why Van Wall weren't ready for the Argentinian Grand Prix, um, the rules had changed. And so they, they were running on um, Avgas, aviation fuel, uh, instead of the various brews that they had for the 1957 season. Um, and... Musso was the one who nearly caught him. Uh, and for the rest of the season, if you read Mike Hawthorne's champion yearbook, um, you'll find that he and Peter Collins were quite scathing about Musso's efforts. They felt he didn't try hard enough, which was totally unfair. There was a sort of um, grouping against Luigi Musso from the, the British part of the Ferrari team that year. Um, and part that was partly, I think, what led to, I'm not saying it directly led to Musso's accident at France later on, but um, it, he definitely was, under considerable pressure, both for personal reasons and also within the team. Uh, and Kev, just to justify my otherwise uh, slightly insane introduction to this race. Yeah, I sorry, the, I, I, I just injury. realised. Yeah, he's um, yeah. Sterling's first wife had poked him in the eye um, during uh, the course. Accidentally, of the, I think we should. Have. Yes, I don't think it was deliberate, but scraped the uh, cornea, I think. And um, yeah, he, well, I, he so he was wearing a, an eye patch at various points during the during the weekend. And, when he was and, in the car. I think maybe in practice. I'm not sure whether he did in the race. It's difficult for depth perception. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. So, but at other points during the weekend, he was, and he was on painkillers. So he had all these things against him, um, really. So it was, a, it was another one of those, yeah, as I say, this winning against the odds, which I think was kind of, if you had to sum it, sum it up, I think that would be Mossy's great races. It's winning against the odds, whether it's a big comeback or not in the right car or something like that. There was, you know, he, he, he it was a never give up always going to try and make that extra difference to to win the race. Uh, and the tyres, I think, reposed in the Donington collection for a long time. Um, you ah. could, you could actually, whether they're still there, I don't know. But I, I think Tom Wheatcroft got his hands on them and, and put them on display. Uh, and they are right down to the canvas. Yeah. At number five in the list, the 58 
Moroccan Grand Prix, winning in the Vanwall. This is this is here really because it's um, <laughs> it, it, it's handling title pressure, um, and he had to because of the ridiculous point scoring system, he had to win and set fastest lap. And Mike Hawthorne finish. I think it was lower than third. Was it third or low? he had to finish second, didn't he, to to win it? Yes. I think uh, Hawthorne. Yes, yeah, so third would have been. Um, Okay for Sterling. Yeah, and 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 Moss just disappeared down the road basically, and and it's perhaps in some respects doesn't stand up to some of these other sort of great charges and memories and things like that. But it's more the context really. Um, that, I, that I, I think you're influenced, Kevin, there by by you, your belief that Sterling Moss was under pressure. <laughs> I, I don't think he was. I, I don't get the impression from thinking back to those days. There was any ever somebody who was under real pressure. I mean, yes, anybody in a situation is leading a race is under some sort of pressure, but not in the way that other drivers talk about it, whether it's then or now. I, I, I just think he knew what the job was he had to do, and he got on and well, did it. That's to his credit as a driver. Yeah, that's remarkable because that, that's what the the best drivers do. Yes. They they drive as if the stakes aren't sky high when yes. they're at their highest. That's right. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't put it as high as you have. Yeah, that's 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 fair enough. Maybe I should move it down the list. But I, the other key thing about that, because everyone always remembers Phil Hill moving out of the way for yes. Hawthorne to finish second to clinch the championship. But one of the key moments is Tony Brooks's retirement, Moss's uh, team of animal teammate, who I think is one of the greatest underrated racing drivers, separate point. Yes. Um, and had that car stayed reliable, there's a chance that he would have been able to get himself somewhere in the region of Hill and, and Hawthorne and stop that happening. But unfortunately, um, the van will broke. But can we now go back to the Portuguese Grand Prix, which we touched on earlier, uh, which influenced the outcome of the World Championship? Because in that race, Sterling had won easily on on the street circuit at, um, in Portugal. And uh, Mike Hawthorne spun on the last lap. He was running second, spun on the last lap, stalled the engine. Um, and the way Sterling tells the story, he stopped on his slowing down lap to say to, to Mike Hawthorne, why don't you bump start it going in the opposite direction to the circuit? But do it on the pavement, the, the the footwalk, whatever you want to call it. So, Hawthorne did that, got the engine fired up, finished the, the the last lap in second place, which of course got him six points in those days in the World Championship. Um, and Sterling Moss, of course, lost the World Championship by a point. They were going to the organisers were going to exclude Mike Hawthorne because of driving in the wrong direction on the circuit, and Sterling came in his support and said, "No, he wasn't on the circuit. He was on the pavement. That wasn't part of the circuit." Uh, and so the organisers allowed Hawthorne to keep his second place. Had that not happened, obviously Sterling would have been world champion. And I think I've read somewhere also that Sterling was annoyed about that race because of the fastest lap situation. So I think that he didn't feel that he was given sufficient uh, information about the fastest lap because he used to get a point. Was that the last year you could no, get a point? Well, well, the story um, is this. They held out a board saying um, REG, which Sterling, sorry, saying REC, uh, and Sterling read it as REG, meaning regular, when in fact what the board was meant to say was record, uh, well, it did say REC for record, giving Sterling the message that Mike Hawthorne has got the fastest lap and therefore was going to get a point. And because he'd misread it, he didn't go even quicker to try and get the record back. So Mike Hawthorne got the fastest lap. Um, so that was another point that would have made the difference. So there were two reasons why the Portuguese Grand Prix was crucial in Sterling's failure. But on performance, and you mentioned it earlier, he won more Grand Prix than Mike Hawthorne did. Yes, by any other standard, but for what happened in Portugal, he would have been world champion. But part of what happened in Portugal was down to him. 
Number four on the list, 1961 BRDC International Trophy. That was uh, part of one of my favourites, the Internet, uh, the Internet Continental Formula, the, the short-lived breakaway. Yes. Oh, well, the, the, the British teams weren't very happy about and this. There's a lot of correspondence about this in, in all sport and, and motorsport. Uh, because I think it was announced at the end of 58 yes. that it was going to be 461. So they had an awful lot of time to argue about it. And the British team didn't like it, didn't want to go from the two and a half litre formula to the one and a half litre. And this is probably as this is there have been threats of breakaway Formula One world championships on and off over the years. But this sort of actually happened in the sense that the intercontinental formula was for two and a half litre cars. They ran four races in the end, was it? Four or five, yeah. Um, There were were four in the British series and there was one, there was meant to be a a European championship as well, but it only had one race at Brands Hatch. There you go. The the, the European organisers couldn't be bothered. Um, (laughs) They got on with the job of of running Formula One races. Um, Yeah, as you say, Kevin, I mean, it it was um, one of a number of attempts they'd already flexed their muscles by keeping away from the 1959 uh, Italian Grand Prix run on the bank circuit. The British constructors didn't get it 60. 60, sorry, 1960, quite right. Um, They'd stayed away from that. And they thought they were powerful. And if they stamped their feet and made a fuss, um, the FIA would cave in. When did the FIA cave in? <laughs> but that, that race, I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to Sterling about this race before he sort of retired from public um, public life, as it were. And he, he we were talking about wet weather drives and he actually said, oh, that was that was probably my best wet weather one, certainly one that he remembered. Um, it was a strong it was a strong field. Pretty much everyone was there except, you know, the Ferrari. Because um, obviously they, <laughs> they were very happy with the one and a half litre category because they were actually ready for it. Um, and... Uh, he uh, it was one of Jack Brabham's better days because he he lapped uh, everyone else, but Sterling lapped him. So it was a it was just one of those great. It just happens not to have been in a world championship race, but it's one of those great uh, where, where the drives really really completely did. And that Jack did actually beat him away, so he had to yes. overtake Brabham. And about twenty odd laps later, he overtook him again. Uh, we're talking about a three mile lap here. I mean, it wasn't a sort of short lap; it was a three mile lap. So he he made up all that distance on the driver who was um, the reigning world champion, in fact, because Jack had won it in 1960, so 61. Um, early on in the year, in Mar- in uh, May, it was. Uh, um, but by then, you the the this is a good example of how Moss was regarded. By then, it almost wasn't it almost wasn't a surprise that he would do that it was it was well held at the time but i don't think that it was necessarily one of those this is we would probably be more excited about it now i think i think if you dug out the autosport report you'll find oh yeah, yeah no i've gone yeah i've yeah. got but i mean they were always very well usually very complimentary about sterling but i think it probably we would think of it as more remarkable now if someone did that now but also another example that is 61 monaco where richie ginther who finished second in the ferrari picked that as his race of my life he was prepared to pick a race where he was beaten in theory by an inferior car, but Sterling was driving it, so yeah, it's almost put to one side. No, but- I, 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 I think that drive at, um, at Silverstone was regarded as, as very remarkable. I mean, it, 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 even at the time, even at the time, it wasn't normal for Sterling Moss or anybody to to win against a, a, a strong field by over a lap. I mean, he did remarkable things, as we've been talking about. But that's that's a huge margin, a lap advantage over the guy who just won the world championship, who won the British Grand Prix there uh, a few months earlier. Hmm. Number three, the 1959 Nürburgring 1000 kilometres, a famous win for Aston Martin. Well, this is uh, Ian's, Ian's obviously already talked about talked about this one. Um, you know, Sterling persuaded Aston Martin to send a car there in the first place. Um, 
and um, built up a big lead, handed over to Jack Fairman, who put it in a ditch. To be fair to Fairman, had it been anyone else, that was probably where it would have stayed. But he was quite a strong guy, wasn't he? He pretty much single-handedly, I think, lifted the car out. Required quite a bit of extraction, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but I think Sterling had almost... I think he changed. I think yes. he was ready oh, to, he I think was he was ready ready to, to leave because okay. it took that yeah. long. Um, but then, you know, oh, the trace was on. So it's you're back into well, you know, sort of perfect picture. moss moment. The famous picture, which I'm afraid I have to give credit to Motorsport about, which they have of the car back in the pits. Fairman brought it back. Um, with a big dent in the rear because the oh, I know the physical mm. effort that he, he he put into getting the car out of the out of the ditch um, put a big dent in the back of the car he comes into the pits and, and there he's trying to get out of the car and there's Sterling trying to pull him out of the car to get back in the car and sort of uh, play catch up uh, uh, it, it was well I think uh, and, and, and Moss reckons it's one of his all time um, great drives that it was it was a, an extraordinary performance on the old Nordschleife I mean not not on the modern smoothed out Nordschleife I mean it's still a challenge circuit but that was in those days something absolutely extraordinary and, and if you read the reports I mean at the time it was regarded as something extraordinary as well yeah the top three in this list were quite easy to put in the three it was just which order to put yes. them in was the was the tricky part 1961 Monaco is second we've re- recently mentioned that one it's, it's almost the quintessential Grand Prix win for for Moss it's the one that's always cited isn't it in the, in the Lotus 18 well that, because obviously Sterling has been very good you know was very good with the media um, and it, and can that continued long? I mean, he used to up until fairly recently ring the Allsport office still occasionally, which is which is great. Um, so he's been interviewed many times on some of these subjects, and at different points he's picked either sixty one Monaco or the number one that we get to in a minute um, uh, at his greatest race. So, so this is his greatest Grand Prix, if you like. So Lotus eighteen, thirty Bray horsepower down. Ian, do you think on the Ferraris? Uh, uh, something, that's something what they like say that. about that. Yes. Um, and. Uh, had, you know, he claimed he didn't expect to win. He was sort of kept he got the lead fairly early on, and was kept expecting one or other of the Ferraris to arrive on his tail. Um, but he just kept going, and um, his uh, his average lap time was within I think point four of a second of his pole time. So it was a, and it was a hundred laps. So it was a it, yeah. We talk about qualifying laps in races now. That was a I should think that was probably about three hours at that kind of rate. Two hours. Um, two hours. After, yeah. Um, so yeah, full full Grand Prix distance, and um, they never got to him. No, it, it, it was uh, he used to say. Um, I mean, yes, as you say, he's, he's he's been asked about this race many times over the years. Um, that it was the one race, and this goes back to at the time uh, sort of comment. Um, it was the one race where he was at ten tenths all the way through, which you can equate. I mean. I think it was Jenks again because it was something that came out of motorcycle racing. This assessment of performance or driving levels by tenths and driving at ten tenths um, for the whole race. I suppose you equate to a qualifying lap on every lap. Um, it is, and if you think of the concentration you need to drive around Monaco when you've got pavements and barrier. Well, not so much in the way of barriers then. I suppose you had um, walls, straw bales. Uh, and to, to to keep that up all the way through. I mean, that was 1961. I mean, by then, Sterling was at the peak of his powers. Um, and uh, to say it was what was expected is is not fair because nobody expected him to beat the Ferraris. The Ferraris had this power advantage, but it was typical Sterling, I suppose. Uh, and Clark was in that race as well with a, you know, he, he wasn't yet obviously at his anywhere like what his peak was going to be. but the, And also, it wasn't just one Ferrari. I think they were swapping the order around behind. Yes, that's right. To try and see which one of them could, 
you know, could make could bridge the almost like um, the peloton trying to close down an early breakaway in a cycle race, but they just they just couldn't they couldn't do it. Yeah, but uh, I mean, at the end, if you see him receiving the um, garlands and trophy from Prince Rainier, he doesn't look as shattered as other winners have done over shorter distances in subsequent years, or other drivers who came second in previous years. You might think of who I mean. Yeah, I can guess. I think. <laughs> uh, when it comes to number one 1955 Mia Mia very famous race made famous by Dennis Jenkinson's presence in the uh, in the co-pilot seat and of course he was uh, he wrote a very famous um, article in Motorsport wonderful wonderful read if you ever get the chance to, uh, to to read it so this is just one of the great wins in great wins in the great epic road race I, I really didn't want to put it number one because it's so obvious um, but I, in the end I just couldn't not because well he he made mistakes during the course of the run, oh, yeah. which is obviously well recorded because Jenks was sat alongside him. And I think he probably had the best car for the event, even if it wasn't necessarily the fastest. I think it was the best combination. So some bigger engine Ferraris were probably quicker, but the Merc was, I think, the best car. So that kind of... And he had Jenks in the call in the pace notes, but it's just the nature of the event. Thousand miles around Italy, almost always won by... Italians with local knowledge. In fact, I think the only winner, other than non-Italian winner, was Rudolf Caraccioli before the war. He wasn't bad as well. He was quite handy. Well, uh, well, it's just the, the epicness of the event, I think. There was the emasculated 1941, which was won by BMW. Oh, it was, von yes. Yeah. But otherwise, yes, he was the only... Uh, and they had to make up by all the practices they did it beforehand um, for the knowledge that people like Piero Taruffi had um, of, of the roads because they'd been over it over and over and over again. They were Sterling, yes, he'd driven in the millimilia before for Jaguar, um, but they practiced very, very hard. Uh, you say calling the pace notes. Well, of course, there was no intercom then. It was simply a question of, of hand yeah, signals. Hand signals. Mm. Well, there's yeah. the yes. decks he had with all the... Uh, yeah, that's right. Notes, so. um, but... Well, Ed's already touched on this. The the the, the article that, that the story. I mean, it's, it's not just a report. I mean, the, the story that Jenks wrote, uh, wrote. Dare I say it in the present company is I think the best bit of motor racing journalism ever. Oh, it's fantastic! Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's something you also everybody who hears this ought to get hold of a copy of that, and, and that is real motoring journalism. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't other people who are capable of producing proper motoring journalism but um it's it, i read that over and over again and if you've ever been to italy and get anywhere near the route it's worth driving on it because a lot of it is still the same i mean it's, it's um uh i used to go to my daughter lived near um ancona and ancona was on the route and near a place called senegalia um and you just think driving down there at 180 miles an hour in 1955 it, it's quite extraordinary and then there's one lovely bit in the in, in jenks's uh, report about or story about um, overtaking an aeroplane on on the way yes. back to on the way back to Brescia. Um, he looked up and they're they're overtaking this aeroplane that was filming the race. Uh, it, it, it was just out of this world. And yes, he made the occasional mistake, but who wouldn't over a thousand uh, miles? He still beat Fangio by half an hour. It was the fastest. Uh, yeah. Well, it remains. It will forever be the fastest. Thing. Yeah. I mean, and also it's probably worth uh, mentioning that although he did have those. Yeah, the pace notes on the scroll that some of the corners looked different to practice because there was yes. crowd yeah. everywhere yeah. so it's suddenly when your apex is a load of people rather than you know because crowd control wouldn't have been a thing really um compared to modern standards so it, you know it wasn't it wasn't a simple case of we're well, here are the notes and off we go and we're going to win it it was much more of a grueling event uh, than that I, I mean, it, it was just 
uh, an extraordinary. If, as I say, if you go to Italy and 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 try and follow the route or parts of the route, which I've done, it's just mind-boggling to think of the performance that, that he must have put in. Talked about Monaco Grand Prix and driving at ten tenths. Now he wasn't at ten tenths all the way through the Millimilio, I don't suppose, but nonetheless he was pretty close to it for a thousand miles for ten hours. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Mm. Can we just give a shout out to John Fitch at this point? Who did he choose that as the race of his life? As he well? did because he won the GT class yes. against Gondomir, who which he rate who he rated in the GT car. But also he was key in coming up with the scroll and. Uh, and, and I had very good fortune of interviewing him at Le Mans a few years ago, um, and he was fascinating and um, fascinating character. But yeah, he he was key to that uh, scroll um, that, that that Jenkinson used to help to help Moss, and did win his own his own class. I think it was fourth, fourth overall. overall. Yeah. Yes. Pretty yeah. pretty impressive as well. So, uh, yeah. are there any races in this list, Ian, that you're furious for Kev, uh, that Kevin hasn't included? Any not in the list? You mean? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not sort of wound up about. Missing, missing races. Um, Ed wants you to be more cross. I think. Yeah, for, I, I'm all for haranguing Kev. Um, I'm all for it. No, I, mean, I, 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 I can't think of any. I, I think there's a good, a good top ten. Yeah. It's difficult because he won over 200 races, didn't <laughs> yeah. he? So, well, I mean, the, I did. Um, I did. I did do some honourable mentions, which I know I've been banned from doing. But I think with Let, Sterling, we should, should make a make mentions. a quick exception. But but two of them we've talked about already, or Ian has the 58. Neighbouring 1,000 kilometres, uh, winning with Jack Brabham in the Aston. And the Taurus Trophy. 59 TT, um, which... Well, which, that definitely ought to be in the top 10 in my um, view. Yeah. Well, maybe I should take uh, Morocco out and put that in instead. But then that's another Aston Martin one. Trying no to changing, it. it's locked in now. Is it? Oh. No equivocation. It's not appeared in print. <laughs> it's appeared in audio, though. Yeah, that's now, true. I suppose um, the reason I, I like the 59... I, I argue for the 59 Taurus Trophy. I, I'd forgotten it wasn't in the list because we already talked about it. Um, it's because I was there. And, and saw him perform in the way that he did. And it was a race. The Ferraris were being driven by people like yeah, Phil Hill, Dan Gurney, Tony Brooks. Uh, there were proper drivers in the mm, Ferraris, mm. Bonnier and Von Tripps in the Porsche. Um, and and uh, he, he just disappeared into the distance. In his second car, let alone the first one, the one that started <laughs> the race, he did, in the other yeah. car, he'd taken over. Uh, it, uh, and, and yeah, I can still visualise seeing him, whether I've watched at the chicane or um, watching at the start it was just a, a mm. fantastic performance that uh, and the, the the other ones 55 Dundra TT which actually was one of Mike Hawthorne's great drives yes. the D-type a car not really suitable for that but one, uh, if you'd watched the footage that Ian talked about earlier on Sterling catches him passes him goes away Fangio catches him and can't get away he gets broad in a bit of a fight for a while with, with Hawthorne yeah. um, and I think that's quite that's quite interesting you know, Sterling was able to just continue that momentum um, Another I, one you've got is, is Sebring in 1954, which I still find an extraordinary result because it was a little 1500cc Oscar uh, and he won the race um, against some decent uh, sports cars with larger engine sizes. Um, that's another example of how you know, Sterling Moss looked after his cars because to, to get a car like that across the line in first place, even if some of the opposition had fallen by the wayside, um, was a considerable achievement. A 12-hour race around an airfield. Yes. I mean, that's I only missed out really because it did require the big Lancias to, to drop out. But even so, he, shouldn't, he should still... It wasn't like he was the next favourite car to no, win. Absolutely not. And then the only other one I, I threw him was the 1960 Monaco Grand Prix, which I think would probably be more highly regarded if it hadn't been for the fact that he then topped it the following year with uh, against the Ferraris. Um, I, I'd call that... Uh, a, a normal 
Moss win. In other words, it was, <laughs> there was nothing outstanding about it. It was a great result. I mean, other people, Jack Brabham was spinning off in the rain and so on, but um, it, it was kind of normal. Well, I think that says a lot about how extraordinary Sterling Moss yes. was. That's just a, a normal win. And it has been fascinating to uh, delve into his career at length. We've probably gone on for four or five hours about this, but it has been fascinating to to dig into him. And uh, I think we certainly agree that he's the greatest of those drivers never to win the World Championship who, uh, who tried it. And he, he's up there with the all-time great racing drivers without a shadow of a doubt. Have we got him ahead of Mario Andretti for you? Well, Mario Andretti, I'd, I'd put as a, in terms of the all-rounders, I still go for Andretti just because of the US success and a bit of loose track stuff, ovals, that kind of thing, mastering ovals as well, which admittedly Moss didn't have the chance to do. But um, but I think if you're looking for, if, if you're looking to throw a driver into a race, just a, a generic race now, you would say Moss would probably beat Andretti. What do you say about this? Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm able to talk having seen as a, as a schoolboy um, Sterling Moss race in the 1950s. Um, but as, as the years go by, there'll be fewer and fewer people able to recall seeing him race. And therefore, we are dependent upon journalists and writers. That's why, not the only reason why, but one of the reasons why that Dennis Jenkinson story of the Millimilia is so important. And so are the other reports, because um, conveying, you, you haven't got the quality of film available of the 1950s that enables people to see just how spectacular and how, how good Sterling was, not in the way that you get today. Um, so how do we preserve... That, that, that Sterling Moss's great story because people will just look at the World Championship tables and say, well, he never won it. Yeah, which is Well, a, that, a, I think the answer to that is doing things like this podcast and doing, I, you know, I, I know people take the mickey, but I do these great drive drives list as another way of talking about people that if you're a hardcore fan like Ian, you're going to know the stories, but hopefully there's a bit of interest in the order and a bit of debate about that. And if you don't know these races, then you might go, Wow, this is someone I need to look but up. I also, more, also you know. I also think that that's why I do think that moniker is the greatest driver never to win the world championship is actually a useful one because it it, it those people who would default oh he never won the world championship so ignore him suddenly think oh hang on a minute well why is this guy someone who so, so it kind of instantly places him as a world championship level driver in that in that group which, yeah surely and, and you would say if you're looking at Grand Prix drivers the only two drivers who really get bolted onto the 33 world champions for consideration are, are Moss and Gilles Villeneuve. But that, that in saying in the that, popular see, perception, I, I'm, I'm yeah, talking. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a, a, a huge gap between Sterling Moss and Gilles Villeneuve. I, I, that's another debate. Yeah, I I, I would definitely endorse. Which is not that knocking view. Gilles Villeneuve. No, no, no I, I would. I would Moss is up here. I would endorse that view, but Villeneuve's the other one that always gets. Well, how about in. this? Just the greatest racing driver of all time. Not the greatest Formula One driver. I think that's a separate argument. Well, but but you, if you, you can, take it all into you account, can make a credible case for it. The depth of his advantage over others. Um, and I think he had more facets to his game, and he proved he could win in different teams and in uh, and and different manufacturers in a way that, say, for example, Jim Clark didn't do. Um, and there are a lot of Clark fans out there, and say he's head and shoulders above. Um, but where do you put Navalari then? You see, when you start talking about the greatest straight driver of all time, well, he has to be in the, the debate. I mean, you can never objectively set a well, I always tend to think it was sort of groups of drivers, but yeah, Moss is, un- is unquestionably up there, Navalari. Yeah these drives there's, there's there's probably about but by, by the time you get down to it there's probably about 15 16 yeah, drivers who if you really sat down and tried to put them all in a bucket it would be those it would be those ones of which all those names well, you, or you could another way looking at it is, is who are the benchmark drivers at those points yeah, which yeah, was for a period. so nuvolari then vimil that we talked about earlier yeah. um bef- gets killed before the world championship then it's fangio then it's moss then it's clark then it's stewart you probably would say it's louder not quite in such a dominant way prost senna schumacher and then, 
you know, you've got, I would put Alonso in with Hamilton. The record won't say it, um, but I think that Alonso and Hamilton should be together on Give the, it 15 uh, years and we'll have added Verstappen to that list. I yeah, Verstappen's, Verstappen's going to be that, the next that's one. That's another debate as well. But yeah, I, I think that's a useful way of looking at it in terms of that sort of lineage of the, the bar raising drivers. Yeah. So I think we'd agree Moss is very good, though. That's the that's that's <laughs> conclusion. That's, well, that's, Moss that's was quite I think good. Kevin believes this, and I, I believe this on you know, having seen him at the time. He, he, he is the greatest, I mean, to my mind. Uh, I mean, the, the top two for me are, are Sterling Moss, Nett, and Senna. But what Sterling Moss never did is some of the stuff on track that Ed and Senna unfortunately did. So that yep. actually gives him the, 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 the edge over Ed and Senna and anybody else. I'd throw Jackie Stewart into this argument, but this this, this is going off on a massive tangent. But <laughs> we should uh, we should probably end before <laughs> before we go down that that line. But Whole certainly, new podcast certainly an, an, an all time great, and it's been fascinating to discuss him and also hear from someone who saw him in action. I'm, I'm very uh, envious of those stories. It's, it's great. Yeah, to but hear you'll them. be seeing people after I've gone that are. Well, that's true. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you'll you'll see the culmination. No well, doubt I've had the, had the privilege to see people like Hamilton, Max Verstappen, trackside, yeah, countless Grand Prix, which is uh, yeah, it's great. It's a great privilege to see these these guys in action. Uh, well, thanks very much, and uh, yeah, do check out Autosport.com for the latest in the world of motorsport and our plus subscriber area for in-depth features from allegedly the world's best motorsport writers. Check out sister titles Motorsport.com, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly, and Motorsport News out weekly. And also, if you enjoy this podcast, do make sure you've subscribed. We're normally out every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering professional-grade industrial supplies, plus real-time product availability, and access to experts ready to answer your toughest questions. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.